Welcome to Build Better Brands. I'm Danielle Clark, and this show is here to provide insights, techniques, and strategies to help you establish a better brand with confidence and clarity. We're on a mission to help as many people as possible start and build stronger brands so they can create happier, healthier lives for themselves and those around them. Today, I am joined by Matt Bagwell. And it's really weird because me and Matt haven't actually met, but I feel like I know him really well. (laughs) We've never (laughs) met in real life. No, we've never met in real life. We, We... I suppose we're e-friends, is that the word now? Virtual? Could be, Vir- virt- virtual, but virtual friends. It'll happen one day, it'll happen one yeah. day. Well, it'll happen soon, um, because uh, Reasons to be Cheerful Live is happening. Ah, yes. I have a ticket, so... Fantastic, yeah. that's, yes. that, that's going to be awesome. So, uh, Matt, you, you do quite a lot. You do breath work, you run you do ultra marathons you also do branding and do branding a lot and marketing um what are you doing right now what's your focus at the moment that's a great question um it's not easy to answer i don't (laughs) think there's a focus and um there's definitely an intention to ensure that everything that i'm doing is helping other people optimize their lives and uh, live as extraordinary a life as possible. So everything seems to ladder up to that, with the exception of doing brand and consulting work for companies that I do because I love it, Danielle. So um, I've got a career in that space. Um, I'm good at it. I'm fast. And I do it because it's like training a muscle. Um, I don't want to lose that skill. I don't think I'll ever return full time into that industry, but I was Mm -hmm. in it for 30 years and um, I enjoyed it very, very much. Lots of great experiences. Uh, So that's kind of um, a side gig um, where I'm doing brand propositions, corporate identity um, and helping people with strategy for their businesses. Um, however, the thrust of what I'm doing in, is in and around coaching, helping people uh, develop the behaviours and systems in their lives for optimal performance. Okay, so you say that you the branding and marketing is a, a side hustle now, but previously that that wasn't the side hustle, hustle, was it? That was your that was your job. You've You've had various roles as a creative director, working in, as we said, marketing and and transformation, um, working around lots of high performance teams and dealing with culture and stuff like that. Um, Do you miss that buzz of being in a big corporation? Absolutely. Uh, I think that it's something that I took for granted. Um, I always loved being part of the teams that I was in and part of the culture of the companies that I was working with. Um, You're absolutely right. So my background um, was design, and initially that was graphic design predominantly for print. Um, And then in 2000, or I guess earlier than that, 92, 93, 94, that was mostly print and photography. 
gets fast forward to about 2007 and it went into something called CD-ROMs that people used to load into their computers and, and watch things like um, a little bit like a DVD, but it was sort of audio, visual and some interactive content. And I, I worked on some of the best of those. Um, and then it all changed in, I guess, uh, 80, no, 98, to, coming towards 2000. The internet exploded, and you won't remember this, Danielle, but I can remember when I, I saw my first web page, um, and I was like, that'll never catch on. Um, it was really quite ugly. Um, however, I um, was right there at the beginning of things like e-commerce and the first dot-com boom, which was 2000, 2002, um, and sort of everything changed, really. Customers' interactions with brands changed, uh, channel strategies changed. Um, and I was right at the very sort of heart of that and at the very start of it. Into customer experience design, which, you know, 2008, 2009 customer experience or UX, as people might know it now, mm -hmm. um, began to sort of evolve and develop. And then subsequently, you know, 2006, 7, 8, you saw the emergence of social media. And so with that, obviously, everything was disrupted uh, the role of brands, the roles of individuals. Um, and so my work was thinking about transformation of companies in order to interact in those spaces across channels in the most appropriate way. And I did that for lots of international brands, leading significant teams, very successful teams, incredibly talented teams. And I think, you know, that that's what I became dependent upon. Um, and I really, really loved working in those environments, it's more challenging uh, being a, a, a one-man band. Although what I do to compensate for that is that when I'm doing branding projects, I'll work with two other people. Uh, one is a far more competent visual designer than I will ever be, and the other is brilliant with words and um, with sort of strategic thinking and uh, helps on brand positioning. So still working in teams um, yeah. that's incredibly important and, and then with the breathing and breath practice you know I'm part of Oxygen Advantage and again that's another community so what I'm doing is compensating for the fact that as a coach most of my work is on my own in this room and beginning to think about how I can coach with other people so creating propositions that involve other people but also um, making sure that I get out into my local community um, into the virtual communities that have been created, some in the pandemic, some before the pandemic, um, and making sure I still get that interaction because I think it's critical for good thinking. Um, you know, I think a problem uh, shared is a problem halved yeah. or even a, a potentially a, an opportunity doubled. Um, so I do like to be with other people. Yeah, it, it can be a challenge, Danielle, but it's one I'm very aware of and so getting out of the house getting out of this room is often a priority for me yeah I totally agree and I can I can really relate I think one of the most difficult things I find about being being a business owner being self-employed and working from my home office is the being being alone a lot um and as much as I like my own company having spent so much time alone I've realized I do actually quite like being around people as well <laughs> totally, totally understand I mean my, my job really was to inspire people to do their best 
encourage them to do their best, support them so they could do their best, make sure that the conditions that surrounded those people uh, encouraged, engendered and nurtured them in such a way that they could do their best. And, you know, my job was to sort of bounce around at the front, waving my hands about and and create that they used to call me jazz hands in most of the companies I worked in. But, um, you know, I needed great people around me to actually execute the work. And um, when I don't have the opportunity to do that, I think that I'm only using part of my strengths. Um, but also the, there's reciprocity in that, right? So great thinking, great ideas, challenge, growth comes from your interactions with other people. And I think we've both been very fortunate to be part of good, strong virtual communities, which have been really supportive during the pandemic uh, post-pandemic now we're just starting so to all emerge and make reconnections or you know transcend virtual communities to become as you say with something like reasons to be cheerful live meeting people that we've never met but meeting them face to face so there are new opportunities and what I'm excited about is that if anything I've been able to co- connect with my local community having spent sort of the last two years walking around it and being here more than necessarily sort of commuting to London. I live down um, on the coast. I was in Brighton, now I'm in a little town called Shoreham, uh, that I have a tendency to enjoy being in sort of a proximity of, say, five miles. That's not to say that I won't be working internationally or nationally and quite comfortable to do so. Uh, But there's something nice about maintaining those close proximity connections and seeing what's available in the local communities um, and see how you can con- you know, contribute to those um, and, and participate in sort of activities. So I think there's been an opportunity. There's always a silver lining at the, en- at the end of these things, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think in a way that's, that's one thing that the pandemic and being kind of forced to not see people in person has it's made me realize how how grateful I am for that opportunity now but what it's also done as well is made made me um really prioritize the things that I really want to do with people in person I think before maybe I was a bit more relaxed about meeting up going places whereas actually if, I, if I'm going to do something I'm, I'm going to make sure it's really worthwhile now because I realize how important that is mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely I totally agree um, and I'm sort of I'm throwing myself as well I'm I'm a outgoing introvert um, or <laughs> an introverted or an introverted outgoing whichever way it is yeah. I, um, I'm definitely um, both <laughs> very uncomfortable and very comfortable in sort of um, in other people's company Um, and so I'm putting myself into environments where I'm going to be able to grow so you know local community activities I'm doing breath work on the beach here uh, which is comparatively easy because everyone else has got their eyes closed but also going to sort of networking events Um, and I'm not a natural networker Um, I've always worked for companies that were very attractive to companies who wanted to work with us, famous agencies and consultancies. So I didn't have to do the hunting and gathering. Uh, There was always a queue of people outside the door wanting our our work um, and services. But now I'm sort of, even this evening, um, putting myself into those environments so that I can uh, have that serendipitous 
meeting of minds and, and seeing what's possible. Um, so I think that many of us have come out of this period of um, being relatively isolated, particularly physically, uh, if not emotionally. And, and certainly we obviously had connections via Zoom and Instagram and other, and other platforms. But just getting back into um, environments where you know, it's it's just nice to be sat beside someone else and, and talking and sharing and, and learning together. Yeah, totally. And one of the things that you've just touched on, I'd like to talk about that a bit more, actually. Breathwork on the beach. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about breathwork and, and how you and I are doing it on the beach. How did that come about? So t- just before the pandemic... Uh, I had trained in three different modalities of breath, um, and there are uh, several. Um, I started in a very uh, spiritual modality. Um, I have this thing I call the woo-woo scale, Danielle, and it's kind of um, and that's not to be disingenuous to either side of this um, equation. But at sort of zero and one is like pure science, right? That's clinical research and science, whether that's physical science, mental science. Um, and then in the, uh, the completely polar opposite, perhaps, is a very spiritual modality where we might find um, incredibly experien- uh, experiential or sort of somatic um, healing, for example. Um, and there's quite a lot of modalities within that. And then in the middle, there's something that I might just simplistically call sort of entertainment breath work, um, which is being spearheaded um, by the most incredible uh, Wim Hof. Yeah. Um, there's some <laughs> there's some science mm-hmm. and there's some spirituality. There's certainly some overcoming of um, long-held beliefs and fears. Um, and, you know, he's done much to sort of create a wave behind him of interest in, in breath work. Um, I've trained in all three, um, and because the way that my mind works is if somebody sort of says, oh, this is doing X, your mind is opening. I'm like, okay, how's that working? You know, I've always been, as a branding person, as a marketeer, I've always been fascinated and truly privileged to be able to get into the science of, like, how a company works. Okay, what's actually happening here? How do you make your stuff? Where does it come from? Um, how does it get from where you make it, uh, where the customer is? How do all of your systems work? I, I guess I'm the kid who used to take apart calculators. You won't remember what one of those is, but um, they used to be really expensive and come from a brand called Texas Instruments. And these things were like £100 when £100 is like £1,000 now. So it's the equivalent of taking an iPhone and unscrewing it and taking all the bits out and then having to go and tell your dad that you can't put it back together. And I think that all I did was just carry on with that curiosity into my adult life and going into companies. And that was certainly the case with breathwork for me. Uh, It's like, okay, I understand the spiritual modality and um, truly respect it. Um, I love what Wim does, uh, never a dull day uh, with Wim Hof, um, but I also wanted to understand the science um, and the very practical application of what we call functional breathing. In the pandemic, I could tell that anxiety was through the roof, and you'll remember those first few weeks. Initially, uh, there was shock, 
Um, and then we sort of started to become used to it. I think that we all thought this was a four week, six week, eight week type of thing, which is why yeah. I drank so much rosé wine. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm on holiday. And I think I yeah. completely propped up the local economy um, in, in sort of off licenses at that period. I don't think um, you're the only one. I was drinking, no. <laughs> I was having a gin every evening, I remember. Well, there you go. We kind of sat out on our step and it was like a nice warm summer. Mm. And it was like, oh, this is okay, notwithstanding that it was a deeply stressful time. And um, there was a lot of people who were displaced from their work and from their families. Um, So there was kind of this really unusual cocktail of both high emotion, positive and really low emotion. And I tended to look at the, the issues that were beginning to emerge very rapidly with social isolation, uh, people beginning to carry quite a bit of anxiety and not wishing that that became chronic. And I was like, okay, the way to sort of help is to help people breathe, to breathe through the anxiety, because I know that there's plenty that you can do with your breath uh, to move yourself into a calmer state. And so I just started to do lives on Instagram, Danielle, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. It took off. It didn't just take off for me. It took off for many breath workers. Um, a lot of people had both the time mm-hmm. and the interest and mm-hmm. the need. Um, it was an imperfect storm. Um, and as a consequence of that, I think it's brilliant that some people have maintained this practice. So the beach bit was just... Um, on a Friday, I would go down and sit on the beach and I'd tell other people that they could join me, um, socially distanced, of course, and I would breathe and then get into the sea. And I was going to maintain this practice throughout the winter. The reality was that I would turn up in the pouring rain with my incredibly dedicated wife, often, not always, and I would sit there on my Todd um, and go live on Instagram and the pouring rain. Um, but it was it was fun. I then, the following summer, did do it in some beaches when we were allowed to travel. I would kind of go live and do breathwork from the beach. It's a nice environment. There's the sound of the sea um, and that sort of rather metronomic sort of wave breaking. And if you're in a pebble beach like Brighton, this sort of inhale and the exhale, you can hear both of them because of the pebbles. Um, And there's something really quite uh, calming about that and clearly being involved in and and surrounded by nature super positive plenty of fresh air Um, more recently I moved to Shoreham and uh, put out a little post on a Facebook group um, and sort of said okay I'm doing a breathwork class 20 people turned up I think the first time Uh, the last time I did it three times later 72 or 73 people turned up so it's becoming a thing here there's 350 members of a new Facebook group breathwork Shoreham Beach and um, and people are turning up. So that's on Saturday mornings now, 8 o'clock, when I'm here. Um, and people are just still discovering breath work it's, or breath training, as I would prefer to call it. And um, what's wonderful is that, you know, communities are, are coming together around these opportunities. Uh, you know, if I can get to 100 people lying on the beach doing breath work and occasionally doing some stuff in the house... Um, then I think there's something really beneficial about being connected to local communities. Yeah, um, no, And I think absolutely. sometimes we overlook that channel. We kind of go, okay, we must look at new channels like TikTok or Snapchat or, you know, how am I going to be doing um, reels? Uh, 
Yeah. And it's like, this this is fine, but there are 16,000 people on a Facebook group in Shoreham, and there's now three or 400 people on the Breathwork Facebook group for Shoreham. Um, in terms of, and I don't mean to be sort of mercenary about this, but if I'm trying to get the message out about the power of Breathwork, sometimes we need to look at more traditional channels than just the sort of emerging new kid on the block. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I think... It sounds like you're almost becoming a bit of a, can I say, a local celebrity then in Shoreham? <laughs> I, um, <laughs> you can say whatever you like, Danielle. Um, I think that it, it is true that both Michelle, she has a women's group. She set up a women's group. I think it has sort of five or six hundred members and about 50 people turn up every other Monday just for a chat. Um, I don't think the same thing would work as well for men, although there is a little community here, which I'm not a part of yet, called Men in Sheds. Okay. Um, I, think, I think I've heard that. I think, I think that might be TV. national. That might even yeah, be national. I've and, seen uh, it on the TV. Yeah. yeah, I think you might have to have a shed. Um, and I think, <laughs> or you just get together and I think they talk about the stuff that they do in their sheds, sort of crafts and woodwork and gardening and things like that. So I, I don't know. I'm not part of it. But there is something, I think, in Lansing that's like that. Um, but these local communities do mean that when we walk down um, the street here, it's not a big town, right? It's it's 16,000 people, sort of maybe something that kind of order of magnitude. Um, yeah, there is some recognition sometimes. Um, and as long as that means that people are breathing well, um, I'm all for it. Yeah, that's good. It's You're having a positive impact on your your community and you know what I think that's really for me when I think about you know the impact I want to have on the world actually your I suppose people call it your circle of influence don't they Mm -hmm. you know the people that you're closest to be it immediately your friends and family but then following on from that it it should really ideally be your your local community the people that are you know closest to you in in proximity so I think that's amazing what you yeah, doing? It's, def- it's definitely, I think it's a combination. Obviously, the, the internet has created a global village and we can interact with people who come on to breathwork classes with me who are in Texas and in California and New Zealand and Australia and all over Europe. And that's really, really powerful um, because there are hundreds, if not thousands, well, there's certainly thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of breath work instructors all over the world Um, and there's something for everybody so it's great that people internationally have been able to connect in these virtual communities that were created um, and made so accessible with platforms like zoom um, and and instagram live and the other technologies Um, so i think that's a really positive thing and but even as brand marketeers sometimes we overlook the stuff that's literally within a square mile or five square miles of where we live. Um, historically, you know, many people wouldn't necessarily move out of their own county. Some wouldn't even move out of their own town or village. And as such, there may have been very, very strong social ties um, and a common sense of purpose. And I think there's nothing more isolating than being a stranger, you know, in your own street. Uh, that can be pretty um, isolating. Um, and so I was determined that when I moved to Shoreham, I would start to 
in some way contribute to my local community. As much as I do virtually, I wanted to um, ensure that I was doing something um, that affected people and supported them in a positive way. And and the breathwork is certainly one of those things. I think there's other things for me to discover as well. Uh, this morning I joined a climbing uh, community that's two miles away and I'm determined to go there often. Let's see where that leads. But I think there'll be other projects, Danielle, that will be in the local community because, uh, one, it's really convenient, but two, I don't necessarily want to be highly distanced from the people that I'm working with. Um, you know, I would love to feel that I was improving the environment that I live in. And I think that also extends to my attitude um, about things like environmentalism. Again, we can think big global climate crisis and big picture and might expect corporates to solve for that or large enterprises or governments um, and very influential people. But actually our circle of influence and, and it could be very local as well. Yeah. Um, so I think hyper-local and local um, will play a significant role in changing behaviours, changing attitudes. Um, and at the same time, I think that there's a role for national and international communities as well. So I think it's a blend. Yeah. And I think that the the rise of Wim Hof has definitely from from my experience and from what I've seen has really started to put breathwork and cold water immersion, cold water therapy on the map. He he's really built his personal brand and you know he's had the show on the bbc and mm -hmm. people are really starting to pay attention to that um how how have you found building your personal brand around matt bagwell and previously you were love to learn to and you've had a bit of a transition um how have you found that it's been an interesting journey, Danielle. So prior to the pandemic, and in fact, in January 2020, so the pandemic hit 2020, March, I guess, the 18th of March 2020. Um, yeah. Just prior to that, two months to that, I sold a business called Seven Feet Apart, and I made sneakers. So having had a, an illustrious career and a wonderful career in marketing, I thought I'd leave it. Started my own shoe company. I don't think I've ever been close to marketing as I was when I had my own company. That sounds cool. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, but there's one thing being a, like a global head of strategy in a consulting company where you can talk about Google Analytics, but you've never actually used it. And it's quite another where your entire business and the livelihoods of all of the people that you employ are in totally dependent on your ability to actually use the tool. So I got incredibly close to the tools at that time. Things like, I can't even believe I'm saying it, things like Facebook Ad Manager and Google Analytics. Although I'm not a particularly analytical person, I'm much more creative um, bias. Um, you know, you have to learn the tools. So I didn't get that far away from marketing at all. <laughs> come, come 2020, mm -hmm. I sold that business in the January, which was fortuitous because by March, no one was buying shoes. Um, in fact, the only thing people were buying is sort of um, house paint and, and DIY stuff. 
and, and uh, bread makers and bread makers and rose <laughs> and rose wine. Um, no one was buying trousers because no one was wearing them, and, and no one was wearing shoes because we were all kind of living in a Zoom world of pop, yeah. of of, of uh, pub <laughs> quizzes. I've never I've never really been a fan of a pub quiz, uh, but I did a lot of them. So um, you know, I, I, as soon as I left that business or I sold that business, um, I. Um, I had gone on holiday to decompress from uh, being a entrepreneur uh, for five years, uh, which was a roller coaster and a brilliant experience. I took a break um, and went and sat on a beach, as as you might, and um, not because I'd made a fortune, by the way, but because um, I hadn't. So I went to decompress and, and mourn the loss of my business uh, to some extent. Um, and created love to learn to. It was a knee-jerk reaction, Daniel. I was like, okay, I just must, I must have a brand because I didn't really know what my life was or what it meant. And I know this sounds a bit unusual, but for me, I had been the brand of Seven Feet Apart. It was kind of difficult to determine where Seven Feet Apart started and finished and where it was the personalities of the brand. And that often happens where small companies are led by people all companies are led by people initially um, before they become, say, SME, you know, sort of enterprise-sized companies, and then it's a little bit more about the functionality of the or the product. Um, but if you even if you look at something really large like Virgin, um, then most people will default to Branson, and so it was kind of hard to go. Well, where does yeah. the where does the man start and the brand finish, or vice versa? So. Because I was having an existential experience at that moment, I just created Love to Learn To. And the whole point was, love to eat bread, learn to bake sourdough. So you could you could plug anything in there, um, love to perform, learn to breathe, for example. It was kind of this idea, but I didn't actually know what we were going to do. I just knew that a lifelong experience of learning is important for all of us. Um, I genuinely believe that if we can maintain curiosity, continue playing, trying and sometimes um, succeeding, but often not, that the mind stays sharp, the the spirit stays sharp, um, and physically we stay sharp. And so I, I wanted to create something that was love to learn to. And six weeks later, love to learn to became a breathing platform. Um, and it developed as such. It became quite attractive. It garnered, I think, about three and a half, four thousand followers. That's not a small number, but it's also not a big number. Um, and you know, actually, numbers of followers don't really matter. Um, the question is about engagement. And I also think a better question, even than engagement metrics, is: Are you putting out quality that is genuinely? Su- sort of supporting and helping people that's a different measure that's a qualitative measure rather than a quantitative measure but it had a strong community um, and then during the pandemic you know upwards of 80 people would turn up at every class um, not only because you know the breath was important but also people had high availabilities of time you yeah. know once the kids were asleep and we had no choice but to stay in our houses we had limited options of what to do with our time so people would discovering things like CrossFit or, as you say, baking bread and um, painting the house or doing breathwork. So the community grew. 
it was only recently that I made the decision that I would sort of walk away from Love to Learn to as a brand and begin to sort of center everything that I did around Matt Bagwell. One of the reasons for that was incredibly practical. Every time somebody said, well, what are you on Instagram or who are you on Instagram? I'd have to say Love to Learn to. Then I'd have to spell it and explain that it wasn't numeric twos. It was, you know, written twos. And then it was, was it T... W-O or T-O-O or T-O. Yeah. And people don't have the attention for this. By the time I'd bored them with the spelling of the URL, they kind of had lost interest. So it's like, okay, well, what will they remember? They'll remember my name. Yeah. Matt Bagwell, you're building your personal brand now. Mm-hmm. How, how are you finding that? Has it been difficult? I think that it's as difficult as we want to make it when we have personal brands, Danielle. Um, initially, there's questions about, okay, well, do I post my authentic self anywhere? Or am I wrapping this in some kind of uh, marketing wrapper? Um, and the answer for me is to be authentic, um, partly because it's easier. Um, and partly because I think it's more um, engaging for those people who are drawn to it. It's also probably repels people who are not, right? So people opt in and go, yeah, okay, um, Daniel, you you breathe with me every morning, and I sort of have this, um, it it wasn't my idea, it was someone else's, but this sort of thought, um, come for the waffles, stay for the breath. Hold on a minute. (laughs) Um, And being authentic I'll just put a pause in there. Being authentic is easier because um, I don't have to contrive what I'm doing. I don't have to sit down and necessarily think about the positioning of it or remember a set of principles or values or sort of an identity. It's just coming straight from the heart out. Now, that's a positive in my mind, but it means that occasionally there's a swear word in there that you probably wouldn't get in brand guidelines for many companies. And, um, <laughs> well, and it, it depends on the company, doesn't it? Well, it, it does. It depends if they're being disruptive or not. Well, there's lots of ways to be disruptive. Swearing is one of them, but it's not mandatory. But um, <laughs> I, th- I think that it also means that it can get quite esoteric occasionally. And, you know, if I'm having good days... Uh, I think people will sense that energy in in my branding. If I'm having less good days, I think people will sense that in my content. Um, but I think that that means that people who want to relate to the brand on a on a personal level and will do so. I think it's um, it helps create empathy between myself and the people that I spend time with. Um, in the communities that I'm either contributing to or, or they're spending time with, you know, Matt Bagwell, the breathmaster. And so I don't really necessarily see it as a brand, but I know that it could be perceived as such. So my approach to it is just to be authentic. Uh, there is a thought in my head that is um, constantly, is this helpful? So we have North Stars um, and mine would be, 
you know, am I inspiring and supporting people making positive change in their lives such that they can live the most extraordinary life? You know, am I helping that in some way? Um, and so a picture of my lunch may not be that useful with that guidelines. So that doesn't mean I won't do it. You know, yeah. if that's the most fascinating thing and I feel like I have to post it on social media, um, uh, then you'll find a picture of my lunch or, I don't know, a leaf. Um, but I do think about what it is that I'm creating and, and how I'm contributing because I'm interrupting somebody else's life or assume that I might be. So I, I do think about that and go, is, is, this, is this useful content? I'm not perfect, so occasionally I'm just bragging. Oh, look, I've just been for a long run. Or look, look you know what people are like. Look at me on my beach. And um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and there's an aspect of that because I'm not perfect, but I do try to make sure that what I'm doing um, is helpful and useful. Um, I think there's something you said that really, that's just really made me think. You're interrupting people's lives, so you're trying to make sure that it's um, useful for them. Interrupting, that's really interesting. I think that comes from my marketing background, Danielle. I, when I was working with companies, um, brands tend to think that, often think, not always, but often think that people would like to have really deeply um, platonic relationships with the brand. And they often think that uh, we have really strong emotional attachments to brands. Um, and that's not entirely true. Um, but what is true is when we are marketing, uh, we are interrupting people, um, and in a, that's not always a negative, mm -hmm. um, but I think that we should always respect it. Now, of course, I'm only human, so occasionally there, there will be a picture of a cat or there'll be a picture of a big cloud. And I'm just putting it up there because I, I think sometimes I'm just like, okay, look at that beautiful cat. Wouldn't it be great if my friends could see that beautiful cat as well? Yeah. I don't know where the cat came from in this conversation, but you know what I mean. Sometimes <laughs> I think no, it's exactly I think mean. it's just yeah. this um, in internal thing that sort of says I really want to share that with other people, and it's kind of funny because you look at sort of some of the photographs of sunsets that I and other people post, and they look a bit crap, and yet visually, I'm sure in real life that was probably one of the most sensational sunsets of all time, but it doesn't really render very well in a two inch by two inch square on, yeah. on your iPhone. But nevertheless, I think there's this desire to share it. And, and that's okay, right? We're, we're, we're only playing and treading lightly through life. So the personal brand, yep, I just used Matt Bagwell because it's more likely that people will remember that name than something more convoluted. And and similarly, I thought it was time not to sort of hide behind some some corporate box um, and, and some kind of, I think that there comes a point at which, for me anyway, I just wanted to be, um, here's me, here's my face, that's my name, this is what I do. Um, I've spent 30 years helping people construct boxes um, and often black boxes that people don't understand what's going on inside uh, that have frustrated their customers or whatever it might be. I haven't, we haven't gone out of our way to frustrate customers, but as a consequence of what we've done, we probably did Yeah. Um, sometimes. Um, 
and I just thought, okay, I don't want to be that anymore. I'd, I'd just like to be, here's, here's my face, here's my name, this is my content, this is my stuff. Um, you know, hang out if that's good for you. And if it's not, I can list another 20 people who can really help you, whether it's with breath or with branding or anything else that begins with B. <laughs> Bread making. Exactly. But I think, I think, but when, you know, you talked about being authentic and for the fact that you've you've openly said that actually I was hiding behind Love to Learn Too and it's about people being able to see you, see who you are, connect with you. And actually if if for whatever reason they've they don't feel like you're the right fit or you're for them, then here are lots of other breathwork instructors that you can go and look at. And that's I think that's what's been that's about being authentic isn't it because not everyone is for you and that's okay exactly and you know there are there are going to be people who um like what i do and there are going to be people who like what i do temporarily and there are going to be people who like it less and there are going to be some people who just really don't like it at all and and they kind of disappear really very quickly i'd much rather have 20 followers for whom there's some you know mutually beneficial interaction than 200,000 followers um where there's really low engagement and and no value in those interactions um and I mean that genuinely um and so I think that the pursuit of what might be called vanity measures mm. engagement rates um, community sizes, number of views. Sure, would I like a a, a a video that I do to go viral and and uh, touch a million lives or ten million lives? Um, that would be great, right? But for the right reasons, such that the content becomes useful for those people, not so that I get sponsored by a toothpaste brand. I, that's just <laughs> not not what I'm interested in. Mm. So you've talked. You've talked about a few things. You've talked about connection, wanting to have a positive impact on on people's lives, on local community, wanting to help people breathe better, improve their lives. What's the? Could you sum up in a sentence why you're doing what you're doing? You know what what is your why? Why why do you actually do? breath work or breath training as you said you'd pr uh, prefer to call it it's a it's a brilliant question i think that we know that um humankind goes through stages of of life um shakespeare had six um and I think in more contemporary versions of the same, there's 10. And there's definitely a life stage where um, you become or one can potentially become more benevolent and begin to consider all that you may have learnt um, and experienced and wish that in some way you can uh, support others that may follow make less of the mistakes that you did or learn quickly from the things that you've benefited from. Um, so I think there's definitely an aspect of that. 
um, that um, I'm, I've been incredibly um, fortunate, Daniel. I've worked really, really hard. Um, and although I may look really sprightly, I'm, you know, in my 50s. And, but I've been really very, very um, blessed, frankly, um, with an amazing family, um, with good health in the main, and with many opportunities um, to work for incredible companies, with incredible companies, to build interesting companies. Um, and I think that there's just this realization that um, now is a time for me to give back as much as I possibly can. If If I'm able to affect somebody else's life just by one degree and in some way support them uh, to take a step forward, um, then that's far more enriching for both of us than more materialistic things or necessarily sort of accolades, awards and labels. And, and that's at the heart of what I'm trying to do as a coach, as a transformational coach. Um, I tend to attract people aged between 40 and 55. I tend to attract people who are on a transformational journey, who are asking existential questions, like, why am I here? Or what the fuck is going on? Uh, (laughs) Often. Um, And, you know, I think they come because of my experience, my honesty, and the tools that I'm able to apply to that question. And I don't think that this is a midlife crisis. I don't identify with that. I see this as renaissance. I see this as people um, beginning to see new opportunities for themselves Um, and the opportunity particularly to ask and then answer questions. If I can facilitate some of that, if I can illuminate and create some awareness for them by positive inquiry, um, then if I'm benefiting them in some way, that's, that's particularly rewarding. So that's at the heart of what I do and breath training is one part of that if you can breathe optimally and that might improve your sleep or it might reduce your anxiety or it might increase your focus or it might help you with sports performance and often people focus on that then everybody should be able to do that and it should have wide availability broad awareness it should be taught in schools it should be taught in youth clubs it shouldn't be considered as something marginal or peripheral um, that is either elite or or a little bit inaccessible it should be like writing because we do it all of the time if we do it badly we will perform suboptimally so yes i can be pretty zealous about the breath but similarly if i can help anyone else i will Um, because I've been so fortunate. There's nothing more, uh, there's nothing better, in my opinion, than turning and helping pick somebody else up, right? If someone's tripped and stumbled and you stop and you lift them up, then isn't that the point? Isn't isn't that why we're here? Yeah. Um, It's not everyone's attitude, but no, it's, it's it just not. happens to be mine. <laughs> yeah, but no, I agree with you. And I was just thinking about what you said in terms of your the people that you attract. They're normally, I think you said between 40, 40 and 55. Mm-hmm. 
And I was thinking, hmm, I don't, I don't fit that in. <laughs> There's, there's always there's, that bill. there's always edge cases, Danielle. There are younger people who I, I don't think that asking existential questions or wanting to transform your life is sort of only the the the, the playground of the mind for forty to fifty five year olds. Yeah, I think I that it can certainly happen a lot younger. I'm working with somebody who's probably, and I don't know, and I don't mind either. 25 Mm. and here is a young person comparatively um, asking important questions about what they're going to use their life for and if I can facilitate some awareness in them it's not for me to create the answer that's mentoring or something else coaching is about illuminating a path to finding the question for yourself yeah um, if I can do that for someone who's 25, I'm like, that's brilliant. Um, as much as it would be for a 70-year-old person or a 50-year-old person, you know, I'm not ageist and I don't necessarily see that it's an age-related thing. It just happens to be that, um, and without wanting to stereotype, um, a significant proportion of my coaching clients are men in their 40s. Yeah. I just think it's interesting. And some some of the questions that you've you've talked about, you know, in terms of, you know, why are we here? What's this for? I've asked those questions and I think it's since I started being really reflective mm-hmm. since since I started working with people like you and and Sarah and doing Qigong with Mark. You know, I started really paying attention to me and the way I feel and the things I do and, you know, the impact that I'm I'm having on the world. And that when you start thinking like that, you do start going, actually, what, what am I here for? And is what I'm doing today, is it really what I want to be doing? Is it really, is it creating the the impact that I want? Is it is it by choice or is this something I I don't want to do? And I think I think it's come from a lot of uh, self reflection and and meditating for sure. Mm-hmm. And how does it feel as a consequence? Um, there's been feelings of frustration and um, confusion, but I think I'm coming out of the other side now. Um, I think I'm starting to to un- understand myself a bit more. Mm. And I think it's actually really, even though we we know, you know, we, of course, we should know ourselves better than anyone else. But then when you really start to think about that question, it's really difficult to know yourself and know what you want and who you are. Um so yeah, it's it's been a journey, and and it's one that's definitely going to continue. Um, but I think asking those sorts of questions are important. I don't want to turn around in five, ten years, and and have not known where you know where I was heading. I want to have a vague idea. Yeah, understood that, uh, and I think it's really positive that you are asking those questions. Because uh, they're like little grains of grit 
and then we we start to work on them we start to work them and work them and, and then they become pearls mm. and i think i think we need some of this friction right we we don't need a frictionless comfortable life because then we don't make query and we don't grow we grow as a consequence of inquiry and curiosity and experience um so i understand frustration and i understand anger and these emotions these strong emotions uh, but they can become really sort of i mean people used to talk about pearls of wisdom they can become insights that really help us i think it's also true that throughout life you ask a question about purpose i've had probably four or five uh, carnations or incarnations of mine um, and I've shredded I, I tend to call it shredding I've shredded the shell of who I am several times sometimes because I've chosen to do so and sometimes because there's a degree was a degree of self-destruction and at that period of time you, you sort of step over a former version of yourself that's a, a Mark Shaler phrase um, so I'll credit him with that. But um, what is definitely true, as if we're um, something like a crustacean shredding its shell, we're at our most vulnerable at that point. Um, so as I move from, say, love to learn to, some shield, some sort of like golden shield of a logo that I sort of sat behind and I reveal my true self, there's a degree of vulnerability yeah. But I also think it's absolutely necessary for growth. So when people come to me and sort of say, I don't know what my purpose is, I reassure them that the majority of people don't. And similarly, it's not fixed. No. There's going to be different paths and, and there'll be pivots. Um, but what I would say is a lifelong curiosity is really positive. Um, so that's a value for me. Curiosity is my number one value. And I think I hold that as strongly as either a sense of meaning, what does this all mean, or purpose, why am I here? Mm. I'm also thinking about, well, how will I behave? And I'd say that my values are probably more fixed, although I don't have a fixed mindset, but they are probably more fixed than necessarily the purpose. So mine are curiosity, trust, loyalty, connectedness, and resilience. And they, each of those means different things. Um, but they are kind of guide rails for the purpose that I might be on. Um, when I was in my 30s, um, first of all, I don't know that I'd necessarily have liked myself when I was in my 30s, but I think my purpose was the accumulation of wealth and identity. Um, and I was good at what I did. I was generous um, much of the time, um, but I definitely was consuming an awful lot. You know, and I was building material identity yeah um, and perhaps that was my purpose I also wanted to have a good time and I also wanted to do great work but I was doing it probably for the pursuit of accolades and and high commercial benefit both mine and the company's right that's kind of how I was measured in my 40s and now particularly in my 50s I'm not driven by the same things my purpose is more altruistic or um, certainly benevolent um, and that may not always be the case um, as I transition into my 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s, um, it may transform again. So I think purpose is something that is not persistent. I think it's an evolution. Yeah, that's really interesting. The, the thing, I was thinking about what you said about uh, William Shakespeare having, what was it, six, six. lives? 
And then you mentioned someone else that had 10. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what number do you think you're at now then? Okay, well, if, we, if we're going to go there, let me just um, go and grab this because we, we may as well get to the heart of the matter. Yeah. So Shakespeare's character, Jacques, in As You Like It, um, had seven ages of man. And uh, there was middle age, uh, but that had followed infancy, schoolboy, teenager, young man. Then there's middle age, and then there's old age, and dotage, and death. Okay. Um, what I notice here is that there's an awful lot of references uh, to the male of the species, um, but I also recognise when it was written. Yeah. Um, and in a more contemporary, less misogynistic way, you've got people like Eric Erickson, who's a renowned 20th century psychologist, um, American-German, whose specialist uh, was a specialist in the study of the ego, and he offered eight. Um, so infancy, toddlerhood, preschool, early school, adolescence, young adulthood, middle adulthood, and late adulthood. Okay. So to answer your question, where would I be? I guess I'm either, by at this point, either middle-aged or uh, middle adult, adulthood. Not easy to say. <laughs> However, more contemporary than that, Dr. Thomas Armstrong who wrote a book called The Human Odyssey, uh, Navigating the Stages of Life, suggested that there were 12. And uh, they were pre-birth, which is really interesting that Mm -hmm. there's a recognition there about what happens before we're born. There's hope, which is birth, vitality, 0 to 3, playfulness, 3 to 6, imagination, 6 to 8, ingenuity, 9 to 11, passion, 12 to 20 enterprise 20 to 35 which is where i'm guessing you might be i don't Mm. you don't need to answer that out loud but you are particularly enterprising you're probably in that stage Um, contemplation 35 to 50 which is not surprising if you think about the people who i said attract to my coaching they are in a contemplative state yeah. It used to get called midlife crisis, but it's not. It's it's a midlife opportunity. People are asking mm-hmm. existential questions. Why am I here? What does this mean? Am I meant to be doing this or could I do something different? That's contemplative. Um, and you, you're already experiencing that because you have pre-contemplative reflection. That's not in any way to be disingenuous to you, but it, it's kind of outside of the life phase. You're just getting mm-hmm. there early. That's cool. Mm-hmm. It's not a black and white science. Then age... 50 to 80, benevolence, which is mature adulthood. I guess I'm there. I'm 53. Then apparently wisdom kicks in at 80, which is late adulthood. And then life is the last life stage. Essentially, you've either died or you're dying, which happens after 80 years of age. Um, This is obviously just a framework, not accurate necessarily. I'd argue that that's not entirely accurate. I, I would hate to think I have to get to 80 before I'm wise. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like a long time that's a long time before we're wise and i know that there are many younger people um, who have wisdom uh, and sometimes you hear the expression wisdom beyond their age so i understand the model it's just a framework yeah where do i fit i guess i fit neatly into um benevolence and the behaviors of benevolence are that in mature adulthood having a raised a family tick establish themselves in their work life tick and become contributors 
to the betterment of society through volunteerism, mentorship and other forms of philanthropy, tick, um, these people begin to hope that they can teach others who follow them. So I guess I'm a complete stereotype, Danielle. Yeah, why? I'm glad I asked that question. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a very, very long answer to the question. <laughs> but sometimes we try to make this shit up, right? So we kind of go, oh, I better understand my life stage. And actually, this stuff has been studied for the last sort of 50 to 100 years. Um, and there's some seeds of wisdom in there to go, oh, yeah, OK, th- this makes sense. Um, not to normalize our lived experience, but just to sort of say we're not the first people to have walked through it. Um, obviously, each of our paths are unique, um, but other people have left some markers along the way to sort of go. It's okay, yeah, it's to be, be okay. to be in this in this stage, um, and it's not like you're going to come through it. That's not the point. Um, it's not like treacle we're trying to crawl through here, but it's normal. Uh, to go through a path as as we mature and as we have different experiences. I guess that's my point. And I think that the same is true of brands as it is for personal brands, as it is for people. Uh, there's going to be an arc. Yeah. Um, and, and there's some correlation between um, the maturity of companies and the, and the maturity of people. I, I'd imagine you could loosely couple those together. Yeah, no, definitely. That's super interesting. I'm going to have to have a, a closer look at that. Mm-hmm. So having worked for, I mean, some of the companies you've worked for, I mean, Dell, Barclays, BQ, Virgin, building your own shoe company, having love to learn to, becoming a transformational coach. You've had lots of jobs. Yeah. Is there one lesson having had all these jobs is is there one lesson that any of these jobs have taught you that you think everyone should kind of learn at some point can i have two yeah okay <laughs> i'll give you two okay thanks because you asked um don't be a dick <laughs> just don't be a dick yeah and um and secondly, be curious. You're going to get an awful long way asking lots of questions and being really interested in what other people think and what they do. Whether you're leading teams and you want to be more of a coaching leader, and I would advocate for that, um, or whether you're a company and in an abstract way, you're asking questions of people and you want to understand how people really interact with you and what your brand really means to them. Um, or as individuals, you know, try to learn. You'll, I, I, I have fucked up so many times. Um, don't penalise yourself for the fuck-ups, right? But learn from them um, such that you adapt and evolve and grow um, and I think people and brands or let's not say people let me say brands I think brands need to really understand uh, where they sit on um, Bagwell's hierarchy of needs you've heard of <laughs> you've heard of Maslow's right yes but to bring this back to a brand perspective 
one of the one of the lessons I would say to brands and to brand managers and marketeers is understand where you sit on the the hierarchy of needs um, and be realistic about that. Um, so, for example, I think I was thinking about this conversation before we got into this. And years ago, I used to lecture around um, the brand hierarchy of needs. There are brands which are utilitarian, um, like banks, heating and energy companies. Um, they're having a challenging time right now, um, developing platonic and, and yeah. loved relationships, right? Uh, fuel, um, and I'm talking about the stuff we put into cars unless we're electric. Um, and food, these are sort of like, they're like Maslow's things. I need shelter. Um, I need, you know, I don't want to have anything like a platonic relationship with an estate agency, but they, these are utilitarian brands, right? Be honest about them. Um, the number of years that I spent with banks saying that they wanted to create a sort of like a deeply integrated relationship with their customers. Yeah, <laughs> really? You know, I, I'm sure that um, if my circumstances financially were a little bit different um, from the ones that I experience right now, I would have more interactions with my bank. So I, res oh, yeah. I, re I respect that my interactions with the bank are relatively low, um, apart from just the, the constant tapping away with my um, my phone to buy things. And other people's might be, might be much, much more intimate, um, particularly if they're more dependent on things like loans and, and, the, and, and those types of systems, these products. I get that. But I think that sometimes brands think that people must love them. And at that lower hierarchy of needs, I'm not necessarily sure that they could be engendering trust, but whether they're really going to engen engender any other emotions might be fool's gold. The next level up for me is something that I might call, say, higher utility, um, which are quite sort of for me because of my sporting background and, and my interest in physical and mental health uh, might be the aura ring that sort of looks after my doesn't look after my sleep, but it certainly monitors my sleep and my HRV and my blood levels uh, of my oxygen blood levels, um, my resilience and stress. Um, this is a higher utility brand. Yeah. I probably spend more time with this brand than I do, say, uh, with my bank. Garmin, uh, the watch that tracks everything I do, Strava, these things are high utility brands. Um, and I think that they are important. Like when Garmin has an outage and you can't upload your latest fitness thing, I start to get re reasonably annoyed. And uh, the community kicks off because they're higher utilities. Restaurants might fit in that. It's still food, but there's a aspect of experience around that and um, that's why you know if, if something doesn't quite match your expectations it's not that the food wasn't necessarily calorific or nutritious right it just wasn't the experience that you wanted so you might complain higher than this then I think you get into experiential brands uh, Love Trails who you've heard of with Theo who does the Qigong for example he's built an incredible company around trail running and community and interaction. That's an experiential brand. There are many, particularly in, say, the festival environment, for example, stuff that we pay to go to do because they're edifying and, and, and enriching in some way. Uh, the Campaign Against Living Miserably, the charity that I've done a lot of work with, is in that sort of environment. Um, I'm very fortunate that I don't need to experience them 
for my own crises, but I help fund it for other people's. Um, that's starting to get into philanthropy and, mm. and it's a higher level of experience. And then there's actualization brands or self-actualization. And there's many sort of things like the, the Calm app, not to be confused with Calm, or say something like Headspace, which are like pathways into, say, meditation. You mentioned your own meditation practice. Yeah. There are breathing apps. Um, and, and here there are sort of things which we probably will hold quite dearly um, and because they are working on something that's far more cerebral or spiritual for us. So I guess that's a very long answer to the question, you know, don't don't be a dick. Always be curious, but also understand where you genuinely sit in Bagwell's brand hierarchy of needs trademark um, such that you you create the right services and experiences of those services Um and if, if you were to ask for an example of this, Daniel, I'd say, I don't think that Prime necessarily thinks of itself as anything but a utility. Um, Bezo is many things and not always loved as an individual necessarily. Um, but what is definitely true is Amazon have always hold on to a core principle, which is they're in the convenience business. Totally. Everything that they do is about convenience. Um, they are potentially high utility for some people particularly if you've got say prime um, media content and, and the sort of the entertainment pieces for example um, but they're a utility and they know what their role is they don't create any noise they don't try to engage with me in social media to have a little bit of fun I don't need a flippant tiktok from this brand I just need that click to work um, now, there's many things I don't like about Prime and the impact that it may or may not have had, say, for example, on the high street or my local community in terms of shops and these things. But nevertheless, mm. at least they are clear about where they are in Bagwell's hierarchy of branding. So those those are my three tips from 30 years experience. <laughs> Thank you for those tips. Um, yeah, you said you wanted two, but you kind of had I got three. three. But it's... <laughs> Yeah, and, and don't be verbose. That's four. <laughs> so, I'd just like to say thank you for coming on today. Um, that has been, we've talked about so much, but it's been really interesting um, learning about kind of where you've been, where you're going, the change that you want to make in the world, the impact that you want to have. Um, I'm really glad that we met on on Instagram. You know, I do breath work now. I meditate every morning. You know, for someone that was that hated going in the freezer because it was so cold. You know, I've started cold showers. I've been doing them pretty much every day for the past probably four months now. Brilliant. And I've seen the change. I. I, I haven't been ill in four months. Normally I have a cold or, or something. There's been nothing. Um, so I'm seeing the impact. And if nothing else, you've had you've had a positive impact on me. So I just want to say thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And Danielle, it's, it's, it goes in both directions, right? Um, I'm really pleased that you're doing the cold water and finding that um, there's some connection between that and your immunity and, and your well-being um, 
I certainly think if I could have a fifth learning, it would be just dance in your underpants, right? Just try some stuff. Like this morning it was raining and I was out there in my underpants dancing around because um, actually if we're any age of man, maybe we should just return to playfulness and experimentation. And you've done that with your cold water immersion and you're seeing the benefits of it. When I do a breathwork class and you turn up, as you do consistently at 7 a.m. every morning, and I know that you'll do five or ten minutes of breathwork and that that's going to serve you for your day, that gives me energy. Um, so as much as I might be projecting it out, I also receive it from people's consistent participation. So I'm really grateful for that. And I'm grateful for this opportunity to talk about life, the universe and everything. Um, from a brand perspective, yeah, um, it's great to talk and it's actually great to spend a bit of time in virtual real life. Yes. You never know. <laughs> One day we're going to meet and you will be six foot eight and I will be, I will be four foot two and we won't realize it. And it'll be lovely and it'll be wonderful. <laughs> so on that note, if people want to meet you online, if people want to find you online, where can they go? Well, Matt Bagwell. There you go. It's as simple as that. And now I have to say Matt with two T's. Um, and uh, Bagwell is B-A-G-W-E-L-L. So I am Matt Bagwell on um, LinkedIn. I'm Matt Bagwell on Instagram. Um, Matt at Matt Coaching if people want to email me with questions. Or they can find me on uh, Breathwork or Breath Training Shoreham by Sea. Um, if they look up Breath and Shoreham by Sea on Facebook, they'll find the group. Um, and I do free live classes every morning on Instagram, 7 a.m., um, pretty much every day. Um, I've got to be either commuting or um, feeling pretty miserable, and I don't often feel miserable. Um, normally, it's Matt on the mat. As you know, come for the waffle, stay for the breath. Um, people can come there. Or Sunday evenings, as you know, we do another one on Sunday evenings, 830 and typically that's relaxing. Um, there's often some banter. There may even be a swear word. There could be dancing. Uh, but they're great fun. fun. And um, although I'm being sort of playful around the breath, I take the breath really seriously. So it can really help people relax. Amazing. Lots lots of places to go find you. And yeah, we'll pop all them in the show notes. So thank you, thank you so much for joining me today. Really, really great speaking to you. Thanks, Danielle. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to Build Better Brands. I am so grateful to have you tuning into the show and I'd love to thank you personally. So wherever you are in the world, remember to tag at Danielle Clark Creative in your social media posts and stories. Let us know when you're listening. We want to know what you've enjoyed about the show and give you a show tone. And if you would like to help more people like you discover the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It's going to help us rank higher and reach more listeners. It's also a great way for us to help you with the problems your brand might be facing. Suggest a topic in your review and we might feature it and you in one of our episodes. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. Mm-hmm.